Well, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of All Out War. I am Turner, and I am in the studio with Rosie and with Rachel. How are you guys doing? Doing all right. Doing pretty good. All right, let's do pretty that good. again. Let's do that again. That was like the most. That was the most anticlimactic <laughs> intro. We have an amazing it's guest today. Yes, we do. Yeah, it's been a week. It has. Give me that. It's been a week, and for also, everyone. it's been a week for me too. I gotta admit, and and it's been. We, I mean, you, Rachel, you were gone. We we missed a couple of recordings because mm. you were gone, and and Rosie, you were out of town. I think Rachel was it your anniversary. You you celebrated. Yeah, recently? yeah, it was our anniversary. Yep. Happy and, uh, anniversary. And we're out of town, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, the kids were at another a friend's house, so you know we decided to keep that weekend a little bit more sacred. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Heck yeah. That doesn't happen often. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the days. I remember the days. And Rosie, you were out of town, so we didn't record. Mm-hmm. So let's try this one more time. Okay. Hey, everybody. It's another episode of All Out War. I'm Turner, and I'm in the studio with Rosie <laughs> and with Rachel. Hey, guys. How are y'all? Yo, I'm doing great. Never been better. <laughs> Actually, I, I hate that, uh, that that happened on this episode because I've been really excited about this episode. So <laughs> d- don't... Uh, I, I hope he doesn't listen to this, the, our guest, and think that I'm not super stoked because I am. No, yeah, it's just late. It's yeah. late here. It's we record late on Sunday night. So, mm-hmm. but uh, man, it's going to be great. So stick around, listen to our episode. But Rosie, before we jump into this interview, uh, what do you know? Hey, did you know that um, Russell Crowe was uh, got death threats from Al Qaeda? What? Yeah. So listen to this. Uh, on mo- nine, I hate this European spelling. On nine March two thousand five, on yeah. March 9th, Okay, that's how you say that's it. That's right. Three three nine. Yeah, March 9th, Crow really uh, revealed to GQ magazine that the FBI that FBI agents had approached him prior to the seventy third Academy Awards in March two thousand one. March 2001, so this is before. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And told him that the terrorist group Al-Qaeda wanted to kidnap him. Crow told the magazine that it was the first time he had ever heard of Al-Qaeda and was quoted as saying, you get this late night call from, should I do an Australian accent? If you can, that'd be good. You get this late night call. No. From, that's, that's, a Brit, that's British. <laughs> that I'm sorry. Australian. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you, so you get this late night call from the FBI. <laughs> When you arrive in Los Angeles and they're like, absolutely full on, we've got to talk to you now before you do anything. We have to have a discussion with you, Mr. Crow. Crow recalled that it is something to do with some recording picked up by a French policeman, I think, in either Libya or Algiers. And it was talking, uh, it was about taking iconographic Americans out of the picture as some sort of cultural destabilization plan. So what this means is Al-Qaeda had this plan of stealing, and this is what's funny, American like celebrities yeah. in order to hit us and make us feel bad about like, oh, they're taking our celebrities and like <laughs> hitting our egos. Yeah. The funny thing is, is Russell Crowe is not, he's not American. He's not American. Yeah. He's Australian, which is why I was going to do the Australian accent. So yeah. that's actually, I thought that's really funny. That's cool. That they picked out of all of them. Like, look at all, look at all these. I can't even do accents. Good on you, mate. Good on you, mate. Throw but, another uh, shrimp on the barbie. Yeah. So Al-Qaeda was planning to kidnap, uh, one of the kidnap American film stars. Wow. They didn't know Russell Crowe was Man, that's not Australian. the guy you want to 
I mean, he was. Oh, New Zealand. I'm sorry. He's New Zealand. He's New Zealand. I don't even know how to do New Zealand accent, but uh, he's That's the guy like, you don't want to kidnap, right? I mean, he was like gladiator and stuff. Yeah. And he likes to beat up people when he's he does, drunk. He gets drunk. <laughs> All the tabloids of him getting drunk. And, you know, those Aussies and New Zealanders like their, uh, like their beer. Yeah. Yeah. That would be funny if he, what if, what if he, we just, like a real movie? We let we let him get kidnapped, and then he kills all Akeda. <laughs> he becomes the agent. We just give him a big keg that he keeps on his back. <laughs> it's like a camelback. Just, yeah, and you just just sipping from this thing and just punching, and he's like, "Oh, you like that?" Oh. <laughs> and just knock and kill Akeda. There we go. Oh, you like that? FBI, I know you're listening to this. Right there, you go. You can use that's our, how we defeat Al Qaeda. That's right. Well, I thought Obama wiped out Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda's JV. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. There you go. There we go. <laughs> All right. On a right. complete different note. On a completely different note, um, I would like everyone who's listening right now to do Rosie and Rachel and I a huge favor and uh, go log on to coffeecoffeeroastingco.com. Order five bags each <laughs> under the All Out War Support All Out War tab and help out a Christian-owned small coffee roaster and get yourself some of the best coffee you've ever had. And that way, when we come to this point in the podcast, you can be prepared because I will say to you, sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy. You're listening to the All Out War Podcast. Well, it is my great honor to introduce to our audience uh, someone who we've been interested in for a while listening to. As I said uh, just a few minutes ago, he's an OG truther. Uh, he's been in this uh this revealing the things that are not often preached on in church or taught on in Sunday school, um, but everyone has questions about for a real long time. His name is L.A. Marzulli. He's the author. He's an author, a lecturer, a filmmaker. He's even penned uh, uh, at least 12 books, including a CBA bestseller called The Nephilim Trilogy. You can find him on Twitter, on YouTube, and Facebook, but I would say that you should go download his app. It's the PPNS Report, and then you can get L.A.'s take on all the current events and how they relate from a biblical standpoint. L.A., welcome to the podcast, my friend. Hey, great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Our pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Like we said, this is for us just a great, great honor to have you on. And um, so let's jump into this. Uh, Rosie, you had the you, you and I were discussing just a few weeks ago, and you were asking about Fatma, and you had listened to... Uh, to LA talk about that. So LA, can you share a little bit about Fatima? And I'm probably saying it wrong. I feel like I'm saying it wrong, but, uh, well, it, it depends. If, if you're in, if you're in uh, Portugal, I think you would say it's Fatima yeah. over here. People call it Fatima. So either way works for me. The bottom line is, um, I've been a student of that since I was a kid, you know, and saw the movie, uh, in the 1950s where, uh, it's all, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a managed agenda. You know, they've got a narrative, and that's what the movie is. So as a kid, as a Catholic boy of probably eight or nine years old, I saw it. And the, the party line goes like this. Three kids who are shepherds are out in the field, and this, this the Virgin Mary appears to them. Well, 
as an evangelical who believes in the biblical narrative, and I love Mary of the Bible, don't misunderstand me, but Mary fades, she's in the book of Acts, and then that's it. You don't hear from her. I believe, in my opinion, Luke got the backstory. He went to Mary, sat down and said, well, what's going on? What happened? And Mary tells him the backstory. Now, maybe one of the disciples, that's conjecture on my part. We don't know. But, you know, Luke is writing to Theophilus, and here's the account. This is what happened. And he tells her, I think he sat down with Mary and said, you know, let us know. And, you know, who knows some of the things that, that she might have told him that he left out. You know? <laughs> right. right? You'd have, we have no idea. I'd give anything to sit in that room for that conversation. But the bottom line is Mary fades from the Bible. So it, right, right from the get-go in our films, Fatima 1 and Fatima 2, um, we take Mary off the table. We never discuss what Catholics believe. We don't, don't talk about any of that. So these three kids, it's 1917, World War I is raging, the Bolshevik Revolution is happening in Russia. So everything is, is extremely unstable. Europeans are looking at the overthrow of the monarchy. Mm -hmm. Remember, even then, the monarchies are still there in Europe. I mean, mm -hmm. they're there. They're entrenched. And the fact that all of a sudden, you know, the bourgeois or the, the peasant class, whatever, these commies come up and overthrow the czar, this is unthinkable. Yeah. And they are terrified, absolutely terrified of what's going on. Plus, World War One is raging, and Portugal is involved in that. Portugal, at this time, had never... There were no airplanes in Portugal. There might have been like a scout plane or something uh, in Lisbon, maybe. But even that is like disputed. The bottom line is Lisbon's here, Fatima's way up here. It's a sleepy little village in the middle of nowhere. These three kids, Lucia, uh, Francisco, and Jacinta. Lucia is 10, Francisco is 9, and Jacinta is only 7 years old. So when was the last time you trusted a 10-year-old with anything, <laughs> right? I mean, give me a break, you know? Here's a quarter, don't spend it. Good luck with that, right? So these, and these kids are illiterate. They're totally illiterate. They can't read, they can't write, they've lived in, they're, they're shepherds and shepherdesses. This is what they do. They walk the sheep, they tend the sheep. You know, this is, this is 1917, the middle of nowhere in Portugal. So they're out there and this entity appears to them and begins to communicate with them telepathically. It gives them something to eat and drink. So Lucia, Lucia, as you pronounce it in Portugal, Lucia and Jacinta eat and drink, but Francisco only eats, doesn't drink. So all three can see her, but only Lucia and Jacinta can hear her. <laughs> Francisco never hears a word. So <laughs> now, out of the three witnesses, two of them, you know, we only have two. Francisco doesn't hear anything that's going on. So they see this entity. She tells them to come back on the 13th of the month. So the kids go back and they tell their parents, the parents, you know, you're making this stuff up. They get angry. So the next month, it had, the first apparition happens in May. Stop right there. Hold that thought. Circle back several months earlier where a group of psychics, this is all in the film, by the way, a group of psychics get together and they perform a seance. <laughs> and they're, they're contacting their spirit guides. And one of the guys does automatic writing Writing from right to left, you have to hold it up to a mirror. And it says something wondrous will happen on May 13th in Portugal. Signed, Stella Matutina. But Stella Matutina is signed right to left, the way we would write. <laughs> Stella Matutina is the bright morning star. Another name for a drum roll, please. That dragon, <laughs> that serpent of old, you guessed it, 
Mr. Satan himself. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm making fun of it, but I mean, millions of people have, yeah. have, have drunk the Kool-Aid without doing any type of research. So these psychics publish this. They publish it in the newspaper. This is all in the film. Oh, secular. They, they publish it. Something wondrous is going to happen on May 13th in Portugal. Guess what the something wonderful is? It's these three kids in Fatima who have an apparition. So now it's, it's, it happens in May. So June, you got a couple hundred people that are there. Word, word spreads like wildfire. A couple hundred people show up. The apparition happens. No one can see her except for the kids. There's messages, all this confusion. It's crazy. The parish precinct is demonic. Um, there's a bishop there, but they, they're, they're torturing the kids verbally. What did you see? What's going on? So already there's this maelstrom of activity around the kids. So May, June, July, the crowds swell to thousands of people. Witnesses report seeing all sorts of weird atmospheric phenomenon. Flying hats are seen. Mm-hmm. What does that sound like to you? A flying hat right. in the sky. Oh, so they were seeing all this stuff, and it's, it's a charged atmosphere. So August happens. The kids are incarcerated. They're not allowed to go to the apparition site. Meanwhile, all sorts of weird aerial phenomenon stuff is going on there. So the parish priest and the, and the bishop, whatever, they all get together, the magistrates, and they say, look, go back and tell the entity, the lady, <laughs> to give us a sign. We need a sign. So the kids do that. They go back and ask for a sign. And the lady says, come back on October 13th at 12 o'clock. There will be a sign. So the word gets out. 70,000, 80,000 people are gathered in the field at Fatima, Portugal. It's, it's the, the, the Moors. They're the Moors of Fatima. And I've, I've walked it. I've been there. Boots on the ground. It's now a Catholic shrine that can hold upwards of 1 million people. Jeez. But that's ahead of the story. <laughs> so it's October 13th. It's been raining all night into the early morning. Everyone is sopping wet, sopping wet. The field is wet. The clothes are wet. There's the pictures. There's 12 photographs that were taken of the event of that day. And you can see one of them pictures. There's a sea of black umbrellas everywhere. Uh, of course, everything's in black and white, but there's a sea of umbrellas. And um, so nothing happens at 12 noon. At 1 o'clock, the kids go, here she comes, here she comes. Now, remember, it's been raining, the clouds everywhere. All of a sudden, the clouds part, and there's the sun. Then another cloud moves in and is in front of a sun. Out of this cloud comes a spinning disc-like object, a spinning object, disc-like. And it's spinning like this, throwing off all these wild colors. And everybody's freaking out completely, right? And then it goes down, and then it spins back up like this. It does this three times before it does what researchers call the flyby. Mm-hmm. This thing flies very low over the heads of the people. And there's a pathway where this thing flies directly over. The people who are wearing clothes, the clothes are dry. The ground is dry. People who are looking up at the object, their faces get sunburned. What does that sound like? There's this white substance that falls to the ground. Hmm. Um, car engines uh, spontaneously combust. Gasoline spontaneously combust. Windshields are cracked. Uh, I mean, this is not... And I've seen the movie on Fatima, the one that just came out. We watched it last month when it came out. And it was the party line. It was Look, mm-hmm. the cinematography was great. The acting was great. 
the script was great. It was it was all done really well, but it's all wrong in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, it's like you know, this is a great piece of propaganda. Yeah. You, you know, you're, you've all drunk the Kool Aid. They never in the film they never talk about the fourth witness, mm -hmm. Carolina Carrera, who we who Fia de Armada discovered. So here's the deal: Fia de Armada was doing a research paper in college for. Um, influential women of the 20th century. So she decided to pick Lucia. Everybody knew Lucia, very influential woman of the 20th century. So she goes in, she gets she gets access to the archives at Fatima. Now, I've been to Fatima. I've never been in the archives. A guy like me, they're never going to let within 50 feet of that place. <laughs> but she gets in, she couldn't photograph anything, so she brought a tape recorder in, and she would le read the documents hmm. as fast as she could. Read the documents. Just read, 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 read. Record everything on the tape, then go back and listen. And what she discovered was a completely different narrative than the one that was being promulgated. Hmm. And that led to three books, which she co-authored with Joaquin Fernandez. We interviewed Joaquin. He's, he's in the, both films. And... Uh, Fina passed away in 2014, so I never got to meet her. But I did get to meet her daughter, which was absolutely fantastic, Frederica, and she comes in on the film. She's sort of carrying her mother's mantle, as it were. So what she discovered, there was a fourth witness, Carolina Carrera, who went under the radar. And she saw an entity under the same tree that later that apparition would appear to Lucia, Francisco, and Jacinta. And this entity was very androgynous with long blonde hair, hmm. but Carolina couldn't tell there was a boy or a girl. And the entity began to communicate with Carolina telepathically, saying, come here, come here, come here. So hmm. Carolina was afraid, she didn't go. So she looks back at the sheep that she's tending, she's also a shepherdess. The sheep are all paralyzed. Yeah, they're not moving. And she looks back at the tree, the entity, the blonde-haired boy or girl, whatever it was, had moved from the ground, and it's floating on top of the tree, huh. just floating there. So she's blown away. This this information, the public didn't even know about it until Fina de Armada came out with this. So the eyewitnesses in the field, talk, they call it the miracle of the sun. But we know from science that if the sun leaves its place in the solar system, everybody's dead. Right. Well, it wasn't the sun. And it was a local it was a local phenomenon. People in England didn't see anything. Mm -hmm. People in the United States didn't see anything. So if the if the earth is the head of a as the size of a head of a match head and the sun is a bowling ball, uh you do the math. If that thing moves at all, everybody's incinerated. Mm -hmm. So the sun did not not fall out of the sky spin and come over the crowd to hmm. something else. The question is, what's the something else? And this is why we rely solely on the handwritten documents, the handwritten letters, the handwritten um, interviews done by the parish priest, Father Fiera, in 1917. There was as close as anybody can get to the event. Not 20 years later, or not 10 years later, when, when Lucia is uh, the only surviving child She's now in a convent with a gag order, hmm. right, being run by the Jesuits, and she writes her memoirs 11 years later. How convenient is that? Right. So, and that's what they all go on. So, but, but in the handwritten documents, 
There's nothing about Russia. There's nothing about any of the stuff that now is being promulgated. Mm -hmm. And when asked, when the children were asked, where did she come from? She never said, Lucy, it never says heaven. Hmm. It's not in the handwritten documents from 1917. She says, the entity of a lady said she came from the sky. Here's something that's troubling that Tina Di Armada found. <clears throat> Again, it's not part of a narrative. This entity was wearing a short skirt that fell just below the knees. It was definitely a female, but it came right below the knees. Well, women in 1917 wore dresses that went over their shoe tops, for crying out loud. Hmm. Prostitutes didn't wear short dresses. Hmm. I mean, if you could take a woman in 1917 and transport her to the sexual revolution in the 60s where all these women are running around in miniskirts, they wouldn't know what to do with it. I mean, they just wouldn't know what to do with it. That's so far, so far outside of their paradigm. So here it is, 1917, this entity is wearing this short skirt. So there's a photographer, and I, you know, I know you guys want to get on the other stuff, but I've always believed, I was on George Norrie's show Coast to Coast years ago. We were talking about this, maybe 2003 or something, mm -hmm. right? A long time ago. And I remember going, George, somebody had to have taken a picture. Yeah. Somebody has a picture. And remember, 1917, there's none of these guys around. No <laughs> cell phone, right? Oh, look, it's the miracle of the sun. Click, click, click. Mm. It's not happening. There's one photographer, only one. His name is Joshua Benolio. And if you want to get a joke, if you want to get a crack up when we're done, Google Joshua Benolio and look at the picture, right? And then take a <laughs> screenshot of that picture and then go to, to coast to coast with George Norrie and put the two side by side. <laughs> no! I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? The, the resemblance is really uncanny. So Joshua Benolio was um, the royal Portuguese family, because there was still royalty then, right, mm -hmm. in Portugal. It was still a monarchy. Uh, in fact, anyway, it was still a monarchy. So Joshua Benolio was a royal photographer. So he's in the field at Fatima, and he takes 12 photographs. This is all in the film. So enter Jose, not Jose. They don't pronounce it that way. They pronounce it Jose in Portugal, in Portuguese. Jose Machado, who has access to the Fatima archives to examine the pictures taken by Joshua Benolio, unprecedented. No one's looked at these things. The reason why he's allowed in, uh, Jose is a uh, professor of semiotics. He teaches this, looking at objects, looking at photographs, how they, how they, so he's doing all this. So he gets access, he goes in there, no one knows where the slides are. Hmm. Now, this is a wooden box camera with glass plates. Right. You know, you put the glass plate in, you, you get under the cloth like this, you go click, you wait, you know, you pull the glass plate out, put it in the box, put the next glass plate in, right? That's what it is. Hmm. Kind of like when they put the shrouded turret pictures, but I digress. So he's in there, and they, they, no one knows where the glass plates are. It takes them two hours. They finally find him in his shoebox, tucked away in the back of a closet something. <laughs> I'm not making this up. So he's looking at them, and he's allowed, in his book, which we published, um, which is still available, I believe, on the store. We're going to get it reprinted, I think. But his book, he's, he's allowed to print three of the photographs. One of the photographs is a smoking gun. In that photograph is an object. 
which is intrinsic in the glass plate. Mm -hmm. It is not a chemical burn. It's not a scratch. It's intrinsic. It's part of the real photograph. And what this does is it, you see the photograph like this, my whole screen. And over here in the right corner, looking at the photograph, we see all this billowing smoke on the ground. Now, it's been raining all day, so no one's burning anything, right? Mm -hmm. But there's this, this big billowing smoke, and it goes up like this and then makes a, a turn and stops right where this disc-like object <laughs> is floating, uh, right directly over the apparition site, mm -hmm. directly over where the tree was. We've got the photograph. We publish it. It's in the film. We interviewed Jose. We held his feet to the fire. Um, it's a smoking gun. Mm -hmm. It's a smoking gun. Joshua Benolio got the shot. He got the shot. <laughs> and it clearly shows a disc-like object over the apparition site. So let's back up. Disc-like object, what do the witnesses say? You had doctors, lawyers, you had a cross-section of humanity. And all these people were saying this. I looked up and saw a dull silver disc. Yeah. Oh, hear that over? I looked up and saw a dull silver disc. Well, in 1917, there's no word, there's no verbiage for UFO, flying saucer. All that comes in the middle of the 20th century. Right, yeah. Not so really Roswell and all that. And actually, it's, it's, it's Arnold. Thomas Arnold, who sees the saucers skip, that's where flying saucers came from. Yeah. And then UFOs come, come, you know, after Roswell and all that stuff. Flying saucer, you know, gets flying disc. Well, disc-like object. <laughs> and this is all in the handwritten testimony done from 1917 by Father Fierro. That's what our whole film was based on. That's, we talked to all the witnesses, and I get it. Um, in the very, in the, in the beginning of both films, there's a disclaimer. And I basically look at the camera and say, people have a right to believe whatever they want to believe. So, what I mean by that is, uh, millions of people go to Fatima, Portugal, every year. Yeah. Well, millions of Muslims encircle the Kaaba in Mecca. <laughs> millions of Hindus worship at Guru Puja, and millions of of Buddhists worship at thousands of temples all throughout Asia. Mm -hmm. People have the right to believe what they want to believe. And we're not questioning or, or hammering down anyone's beliefs. But we will investigate what happened, and we will talk talk about our investigation and what it showed. And that's why the two films are what they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we show it. And, and look, in my opinion, after being a student of Fatima for decades and talking to the to the experts, it was a UFO event. There's no doubt in my mind. Absolutely no doubt in my mind. Just like Roswell was a UFO event. Even though people, oh, that was a weather balloon. Nonsense. I sat down with Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. I talked to him face to face. He handled the wreckage. Hmm. So, look, there's another thing where people looked up at whatever this thing was and saw religious figures. Well, there was a so-called miracle of the sun Right. In Conyers, Georgia, I had a woman, after she saw the Fatima film, she was there in Conyers, Georgia, with her fiancé. They're standing shoulder to shoulder, all right? She looks up at, at why this phenomenon is going on. She sees a religious figure. Hmm. Her husband-to-be looks up. He sees a UFO. Yeah. They're yeah. looking at exactly the same place. How is that possible? Hmm. So it's high strangeness, as the late Jan Hallett would say. Yeah. So that's... That's the, that's the thumbnail sketch of the Fatima stuff. 
so let me let me go to the UFO thing for one second. When you when you speak of a metal disc or a so I like I don't know what you believe about you know UFOs and aliens. I to me we've done enough shows on and we've had a couple people on to talk about it. But uh, you know to me it's an interdimensional uh, spiritual th- entity. And you know to be blunt, it's demonic. You know it's uh, right. other, other than God. That's so that's so how does how do you reconcile like wreckage and actual physical stuff if it's from a, from a spiritual you know uh, entity? Yeah, and I and I get that, and and people ask me this all the time. The the problem is we have a very truncated view of the supernatural, hmm. and when we read our Bibles, we really don't believe many of us don't anyway what it actually says. Here's an example. So, what is the flaming sword that keeps Adam and Eve from going in the garden? Hmm. <laughs> what is it? That's great. Right? Yeah, it's a flaming sword. Right? Exactly. Sword. Is that technology? Or is it God just go, let me think, I've got nothing else to do today. Flaming sword, boom. Or is it technology? Hmm. What about when, um, hold on, let me, let me think. Well, the Book of Enoch, well, let, let's stick biblical, but we'll go to the Book of Enoch too because it is quoted uh, in, in our Bible. Oh, yeah. we're, we're so, all about that, so, yeah. don't, <laughs> so yeah, you okay. can t- feel free. Well, yeah. we'll go to the Book of Enoch. <laughs> the, the fallen angels come down and they show mankind primitive technology. Mm-hmm. They show them the art of weapon making. It's primitive, but they show them that in access for the female population. They want the babe. Mm-hmm. So what happens in Ezekiel when the angels come in to Jerusalem, right? And they have slaughter weapons. And then another angel's got an inkhorn and he's writing something on people's heads that aren't going to get slaughtered. Technology. What about in Daniel when the angel who shows up 21 days later, hey, Dan, I would have been here, but I was sustained by the Prince of Persia. I had to go get Mike and the boys, and we fought. <laughs> well, we're not told how they fight. It's definitely not, you know, a game of tiddlywinks or Parcheesi. <laughs> yeah. I'm dating myself here with those games. It's not. <laughs> it's not those games at all. They're fighting. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely fighting. They need to get reinforcements to break through. That means there's a gateway. There's a portal by the Prince of Persia who controls that area. And by the way, that Prince of Persia has never been deposed, hmm. just like the entity that controls the land in Portugal. And hmm. I was hit with the, un, the most unbelievable spiritual warfare I've ever been hit with in all my 40 years as a Christian. I never want to go through that again. Hmm. So um, those are just I, s- samples of the technology that that's there. So this is real wreckage. They make stuff. Absolutely, they make stuff. And... You know, this is technology, and they're using it. And one of the things I remember years ago, talking to the late David Flynn, and I said, you know, I wonder, because maybe part of their punishment for not all the fallen angels, because you've got classes of them, but what if the lowlier ones, or what if a group of them or a portion of them had their wings clipped? Mm-hmm. Now, that, I'm, I'm saying metaphorically, but what if their wings were clipped? What if they no longer have access to get from the second heaven where we know the fallen angels reside, to here. So Satan makes a transportation device to enable them to do that. And I mm. think that's what we're looking at. Wow. That's conjecture. That's conjecture. 
Yeah, yeah, no. Like I said, when we we started off, you're not going to hear these in Sunday school. (laughs) (laughs) I also was thinking about Ezekiel with the wheel within a wheel, crazy lights, the all the you know the 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 jewels. I mean, you you start going through and you look at that. That's a vehicle. Mm -hmm. The cherubim is there. I mean, and God, God the Father is riding around in his 1957 Chevy (laughs) with the top down. He's just loving this. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's real. Yeah. I mean, I just think when we finally get a glimpse of what it's like, we're going to be walking around with our jaws on the ground. Yeah. We're not even going to believe what's there. I mean, it, it's it'll absolutely blow our minds completely. So, so this is the perfect segue then into the topic of Nephilim. We've brought this up a couple times, and we love this topic. It's Rosie and I's favorite. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Michael Heiser, um, in his book, The Unseen Realm. But that that book um, really transformed my thinking on this whole idea of Genesis 6, the unseen realm, and exactly what you're talking about, L.A., which is these principalities, these fallen uh, angels that have realms and authorities and where they reside and how they inter- inter- interact between us and this this temporal, physical realm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, So when you get... You've done extensive work uh, and writing on Nephilim. And, you know, it's something that I personally, I love this topic, but um, can you give us a just a, a thousand foot view on the Nephilim? And then I have a specific question about these elongated skulls that I want you to help me with. Are they, am I, I'll give you the question leading up to it. Are they, are they, are these Nephilim or not? So can you, can you just give us the thousand foot view and then jump into that question for me? Yeah. The thousand-foot view is simply this. Unless, um, as a student of the, of the biblical narrative, unless we come to an understanding and a grip of what Genesis 3.15 states, then we have no idea what's going on, in my humble opinion. Genesis 3.15, we've got the pre-incarnate Christ in the garden, the dragon, i.e. Satan. And this is all in my new book, which is coming out, which deals with the second incursion, how they came back after the yeah. flood. Yeah, I was going to right? Yes. <laughs> this is why I wrote the book, because some of the stuff that's out there, in my opinion, is just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But I digress. So, Genesis 3.15, Jesus is in the garden, the dragon's over here, the serpent, Adam and Eve are over there. So, in the book, the new book, I talk about, look, Eve's conversing with this thing. She's not alarmed by it. And it, mm-hmm. and it makes us wonder, this can't be the first time she's talking with this thing, in my opinion. She, she's familiar with this which then gets into this whole thing, did all the animals talk? Hmm. I mean, you know, if you and I came up with a talking salamander or a talking serpent, right, we'd freak. We would totally freak. So she's not freaking out at all. She just dialogues with this thing calmly, calmly. And that makes us wonder, how long did this go on for? Where the heck is Adam? Hmm. In other words, did this happen so frequently that before... You know, all the animals, they were talking to all the animals. This was normal. Hey, you know, hey, Bob the cow, how you doing today? <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, we don't know. We, we don't know. <laughs> you know, give me give me another paragraph, will you please? But they don't. Anyway, so you get this mandate which comes down from Jesus, which is a real mind, mind boggle. He points to the serpent and goes, your seed, your offspring will be at war at enmity with the seed, the offspring of the woman. He, the one who's coming, oh, by the way, that's me, but you don't know that yet, because <laughs> Jesus is talking in the garden, 
The Messiah will come who will crush your head. You, on the other hand, will bruise his heel. That sets up the rest of the narrative. Mm -hmm. Three chapters later in Genesis 6, the seed of the serpent manifests in Genesis 6. For the life of me, I don't understand how anyone, after knowing Genesis 3.15 and going to Genesis 6, can understand, oh, it's the Sethite theory. Right. It's the yeah. only one of Seth marrying the Hoochie Mamas of Cain. <laughs> there are no Hoochie Mamas there, okay? <laughs> this is the sons of God, the Benehi Elohim, which are the fallen angelic hosts. Mm -hmm. And in my new book, I tell you exactly why they do it, which has never been heard of before. It's something new, and I didn't get this. It came from the Holy Spirit one night mm. when I was reading a book on the Genesis 6 thing, and I just put, put my head down on the pillow and said, you know, Lord, you know, I, I people are, all this stuff is coming out. I mean, I'm just one guy here, and all of a sudden, Lord gave me this download. And he, and he basically, I'll, tell, I'll give you a little bit of the story without giving you the punchline. <laughs> and he goes, what happened at the end of World War II? And I'm going, what? You in. He goes, what happened at the end of World War II? And I, I don't know. What happened at the end of World War II? And then he goes, what did the Japanese do at the end of World War II? And that's when the light bulb started to go off. And I'll just leave here. Mm. It comes out probably right before Christmas. You can have me back on. Oh, yeah. please. Yeah. <laughs> You're booked. But uh, that led to the book. And it's like many of these things, you know, the book of Daniel. Seal up these things, oh, Daniel, until the time of the end. Mm -hmm. Many will run to, over the, run to and fro over the face of the earth and knowledge will increase. Everything is sealed up. And I think where I where the, the text for this the entire book is based on Genesis three fifteen, Genesis six, but then there's an extra biblical text which sheds lights on it, light on it, which in my opinion one, once I got that and I know this passage by heart and was quoted it numerous times, I couldn't believe it. I was so excited, I jumped out of bed ran down, babbled it like a, you know, like a crazed human being to my wife, ran back up, got my cell phone, called Gary Stearman. It was midnight, his time. It's 10 o'clock my time in California before the fire. And mm -hmm. we talked for an hour. Mm. And he was blown away. So the book has taken two years to write. Wow. It's not a really voluminous tome. It's not. It's probably a couple hundred pages max. The warfare has been insane with this thing. Hmm. Setback after setback. Enemy doesn't want this to come out. And we're, we're that close to publishing it. It'll probably, hopefully in the next two weeks, we'll, we'll be ready to rock and roll on it. We'll see. Hmm. So the Nephilim were on the earth, Genesis 6. They're there. They're there to destroy the seed. They're there. You remember when you were a young Christian and you get to the Noah thing? And, you know, Sunday school, it's throwing the ark with all the little animals on it. Isn't this wonderful? No! This stinks, the high heaven. We're going to wipe out everybody on the planet for what? That's Come right. on! That's right. I'm, yeah. not, I'm 30 years old and I'm reading this for the really for the first time as a born-again, spiritual Christian, right? I'm being dragged out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the occult underpinnings, which I've spent my whole life doing spirit guides, the whole thing. I'm a brand-new Christian. I'm reading the Bible. I'm just, you know weeping, crying, repenting, but I get to Genesis 6 and then the flood, and I want to throw the book against the wall. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing here? And then I get to 
Abraham and the five kings, and I want to, oh, no. They, and Sodom and Gomorrah, oh, my God, he did it again. And then you finally get to, you know, the ten plagues, and he's hardening the hearts, and he kills the firstborn of the Egyptians. And then there's this mandate, wipe everybody out in the promised land. It's like, ah! <laughs> There's got to be two gods. There's got to be the God of the Old Testament and then Jesus. Jesus I get. I love Jesus, but I don't get this other guy. This wrathful, you know, capricious, maniacal, <laughs> bloodthirsty God. Yeah! And that's what that's what it comes off as. I mean, if you don't understand, then you, if you don't understand about the Nephilim, then when you get to all these passages, your mind just goes, bling, I can't yeah. do this. Yeah. I couldn't do it 10 years so I read Dr. I.D. E. Thomas's book. That book changed my life. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God, the fallen angels, saw the women of earth, took wives from wherever they chose, went into them, that's fornication, in the biblical sense, and had children by them. These were the mighty men of old. They were everywhere. They're still around for crying out loud. The giant of Kandahar, which I was, you know, approached by a guy from a deep state and threatened. Three ways to Sunday. Really? They're still here. They're still here. And we don't know how old that giant was. He was 12 feet. Was he wow. from, the, from the second incursion in the promised land? More than likely, yes, in my opinion. Hmm. So, look, the Nephilim are here. They are the seed of, serp of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. They're here. They're coming back. Some people believe, like Steve Quell, that some of the bodies may be, might be in stasis. Mm -hmm. Very possible. We don't know. So much we don't know. But these are the unholy offspring. They are hybrid beings. They are the soulless ones. They are in a fixed state. And the, the Nephilim that were wiped out in the flood became the disembodied spirits, which are demons. Yep. Demons are not fallen angels. That was my good, That was going to be my Jewish question to you. Yeah. yeah. Cause uh, that so when I when that when that light bulb clicked off for me and I and I realized okay so the demons are actually the disembodied souls of these dead nephilim that died in the flood and afterwards through the wars and and however else they died they couldn't be saved so they right just kind of unredeemable became, right yeah. so th they were not the the spark of life did not come from God then and and within them it was from the seed of Satan ultimately correct. Genetically manipulated one way or the other. Do you, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so that was the big that was a, the big question, Rosie. You and I had a year ago. We were talking about like, well, how does an angel get a person pregnant? Like, you know. And there is that verse in Hebrews that we talk about where it says, you know, be careful because you you know make sure you show hospitality because you might be entertaining angels unaware. And uh, so that would indicate that they would have some sort of human form, even the 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 angels the good angels you know the ones that haven't fallen so i wonder if uh in some capacity they can they can take a form to be able to impregnate a woman i mean obviously they did we we had the giants we well, have the proof of them yeah, i mean there's a greek word that was that russ Dizdar, my battle buddy taught me metis gets modified and basically what that means is the ability to shape shift and appear as whatever you want to and i realize people a lot of people have a, a real hard time dealing with this. Mm -hmm. they, and most, 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 mostly because these same people have God in the box. Mm -hmm. They have the entire supernatural world in a box. And, you know, it's a nice little package. Yep. You know, they go to church on Sunday and they tithe and they lead a good life and all those things. And they love Jesus. 
but a lot of these people never never wade in the deep waters. They never get into the meat of the word. They stay in the milk for, for decades. I've met I've met guys at churches, you know, who've been a Christian forty, fifty years and they're still back, you know, in romper room essentially. <laughs> They've never gone into the deeper things of the spirit. You know, sometimes I'm criticized by 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 fellow Christians that oh wait, this isn't a salvation message. Well I get that, but that's not my ministry. Mm-hmm. My 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 ministry is to expose the deception of the prince of the power of the air and to herald the return of the King Jesus. And in the midst of that, we do talk about salvation. But right. we expose the deception. And that's what all my work is about. I've met a lot of people who because of the way that God wiped out whole entire tribes and nations in the Old Testament, just like without any mercy, people are like, I can't, I can't reconcile this. Like, this doesn't make any sense. This is not the same God of, you know, who I thought I was (laughs) signing up for. And so that actually becomes a huge turnoff when you don't have the reason why they were targeted in that way. Um, So, yeah, your work and then Michael Heiser has really helped with understanding what just was going on in those days. There's there's a book I wrote called The Cosmic Chess Match, which actually mm. uh, was, and still is in some cases, taught. Uh, sometimes pastors will teach out of that midweek Bible study mm. because it talks about the move, counter-move, move, counter-move of this cosmic war that we see. And it starts with Genesis 3.15 and moves up into modernity. Now, it's not an exhaustive treatise on all the moves and counter-moves that we three see through the Bible, but it certainly... Um, has a really good overview and shows us the move and the counter move because that's what this is. We are at war, yeah. and most Christians don't understand that. Most people, they have no idea that we are actually at war. That's what I mean, that some people never, uh, they never progress into the idea of putting on your armor of God, and once you get your armor of God on, well, what are you going to go do with it? Right. You know, right? Right. You got your armor on, now do something with it. So, Yeah. Do you think the uh, do you think that the Antichrist would be a Nephilim? Absolutely, without <laughs> doubt. <laughs> That's awesome, doubt. man. So I was going to ask, maybe we can bring it in. Um, I, I'm just really interested in. Um, this, this is going to sound kind of weird, but I remember like, I don't know, uh, like 20 years ago when I was first starting to get into this, uh, way too young. Um, I'm just going to throw out, I was going to throw out this name. Like one of the first big guys I remember reading was like David Icke and who is not say, you know, I'm sure you know of him. He's pretty out there. I know. Um, But uh, like one of his biggest things, and I remember it's funny, like my own progression um, is like, he's like, oh, there's like these shape-shifting reptilians that are controlling everything. (laughs) And I remember hearing that like back then. And I'm like, this is silly. And now... I am way more into the idea of like, (laughs) I don't, I wouldn't necessarily from the alpha Dracona star system is where he goes with it. Um, But the fact that these things like you had mentioned are still here, they're around. um, And I would assume, you know, in in some capacity, uh, I don't want to say how to say it. They, if they're able to survive for like a long period of time and, have knowledge and still have not, they're not human. So they're, they have extra, 
abilities or something. I'm just trying to make the idea of maybe these certain people or these Nephilim uh, leftovers or spawns or what have you might be in positions of like power or might be very rich having been alive and been able to amass fortunes and power and all this kind of stuff. Um, Are you, is that something you would agree with or not agree with or how do, obviously I don't want to put you on the spot and say we can start naming names of like, yeah, this person's, you know, something like that. (laughs) Um, But would you, I guess you're agree that they're probably some in power behind the scenes, you know, everyone says the Rothschilds or, you know, something like this, or these big banking families or what have you. But do you think that there's any credence to these? The bloodlines, you mean? Yeah. I guess these, yeah, Nephilim bloodlines that have seeped into certain places of power, or is that just crazy, super stupid talk on my part to think that they would be able to do that? The the idea of a Nephilim bloodline, there's no way to bet that. What I can tell you, there is a Luciferian hierarchy. Mm-hmm. There is a Luciferian agenda. There's a deep occult thread which goes through history because it's still his planet. It's, right. it's Lucifer's planet. It's, it's, it's Satan, the adversary's planet. And until the king comes back, it, he, he reigns. I mean, that's that's how it is. He is the prince of the power of the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I can't bet it, I can talk about it. Uh, do I believe in reptilian shape-shifting entities? <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, have I seen one? No, and I don't want to see one. Yeah. <laughs> We've had reports people that have had encounters with stuff, and it's not pleasant. It never is pleasant. Right. So they're out there. I mean, Dr. Jacob's book, um, Walking Among Us, talked about the hybrids, yep. Yep. which are Nephilim. They are hybrids. Yeah. That's what I mean. Nephilim are here. Right. Um, that's what people don't get. They don't understand what's going on. And there's a thread. Once, once we go to the biblical prophetic narrative, because that is the truth, mm-hmm. if we realize what's going on here, then all the dots just connect. Yeah. But guys like Ike, because they hate Christianity, at least I think he does, yeah. um, he can never understand what he's looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and many other secular researchers never understand that it's all connected like this. Once, once you have a biblical worldview, you can connect all the dots. You can. To your question about the elongated skulls, it's in our new film, on, on DNA, DNA, the final results. It'll be out probably the end of October, early November hmm. at the latest. Um, in my opinion, after seven years of looking at these things, talking to medical doctors, surgeons, optometrists, those elongated skulls might be one of the tribes that fled the Levant, specifically a tribe of cave dwellers called the Horites. Hmm. Horite means cave dweller. They also could be a mixture of the Anakim, Anakim Skywalker, right? Where did he get that from? <laughs> the the Anakim, which means long neck. And because of the position of the foramen magnum on these skulls, which is the brain hole where the stem, the spinal column yeah. attaches to the head, it's, it's all the way to the posterior of the skull. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't manipulate that through pressures, through cranial deformation. So we've got all these people on the film talking about it, that you know you've, you've never seen this before we've got the dna which shows the mitochondrial dna coming from middle east and europe yep. uh and then you know from what i when i was down with tim alberino last last may and uh an archaeologist took us way out into the reserve where the original homes of the Paracas people are still there hmm. but they're 
they're underground. And we actually uncovered a shaft, a very small shaft, like maybe two feet by two feet with rocks that went down into this underground, you know, dwelling. <laughs> and I looked at the archaeologist and I said, well, how do these people see down there? He says, we don't know. Well, I took one of the elongated skulls to an optometrist. He looked at it and said, well, <laughs> right off the bat, the eye sockets are about 30% larger yeah. than a normal human being. The pupil, the pupillary distance should be 65 millimeters where the pupils are located in the sockets. And a normal human being are around 62 to 65 millimeters, right? With the paracas, they're 40 millimeters, 42 millimeters. So they're 30% larger, they're closer together. This would indicate that they had night vision. Hmm. They could see in the dark. Which goes to the Horite, the cave dwellers, Nephilim cave dwellers that were in the Promised Land or the Anakim. We don't know which. And we're at the point now where I'm being discriminated against. And we're, we're going to talk to lawyers when I get back. I'm in California doing the rebuild. We, uh, we, we get back to uh, Oklahoma. Um, we can't get a lab to sequence our DNA in the United States. The moment we say Paraka Skulls or L.A. Marzulli, they won't touch us. That's discrimination. So yeah. let me see. You don't like the results and prove me wrong. You go down to Peru and take 58 samples. You sequence them. You spend tens of thousands of dollars to make this work. And then you tell me where we're going wrong. We're not making this up. It's not contaminated. If it was contaminated, we would have had nuclear DNA. No nuclear DNA. Mm -hmm. Not contaminated. We took fresh samples, 58 fresh samples from the skulls. Then they went to the uh, Canadian Paleo DNA Lab, most of them, and they were sequenced up there. And what they do is they, they for, depending on what the sample is, if it's fresh powder, they don't really have to do a lot because it's powder. But even then, there's ways of getting and reducing the contamination. So we got the baby skull, which we unwrapped. Who gets to do that? was hmm. basically a 1,935-year-old baby mummy skull, the eye sockets are absolutely humongous. Humongous. It's already elongated. The skull's already elongated. The foramen magnum's all the way to the posterior part of the skull. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. And that was tested three different times by two different labs, U2E1. European. U2E1. We tested it three different times, two different labs, no collusion between the labs, U2E1. You tell me what we're looking at. They don't like the results because it blows the Darwinian theory right out of the water. Yeah, there you go. Those those pesky Christians and their silly Bible. <laughs> we don't like that. They're not, it's not they're not science. They believe in superstition. But the moment the moment we do the science, the scientific method, we have our hypothesis and then carry out scientific scientific experiments to see if it's validated. The moment we validate it, oh, we don't like the results. Mm -hmm. So we won't retest any of your samples. That's where we are. Were you able to to gather any other bones, uh, like full skeletons? No. Oh, okay. No. Uh, the reason I was asking is there. You know, we we do know that many of the Nephilim had six fingers, uh, and toes, and so I was wondering if that might be an indicator too. You could find. Well, yeah, my workout on Catalina Island, where I discovered photographs hidden away in the Ralph Gooden collection that had already been picked through. Some of the photographs went missing, according to the former curator. So I got there, 
and they're bringing, this is after hours, two tables are set up, my camera's on a tripod. I, they go, what do you want to see first? They go, bring out the picture. They go into a big metal vault, right? A, a, a vault, a safe, big walk-in metal vault. They start pulling out these these boxes, museum boxes, and I start taking out the files one by one. I get paid dirt in the first hour. I'm finding six fingers, pictures of six fingers, elongated skulls. And then, of course, we have the giant that we found, which other people have taken and made it like it's their work when it's my discovery. But that's how things are done uh, on the Internet in, yeah. in modernity. Never give credit to anybody else. Make sure it's your channel that gets the credit. Okay. Look, I found a really a giant. Right. They take my work to run with it. But, you know, people who are honest, they know, and the Lord knows. Yeah. And that's more important. Yeah. So I have another question. This might be totally um, off. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, talked about this before, but I, I've been, uh, I don't want to say I'm like a kick of this, but um, I know uh, that we, like we talk about the giants and stuff and uh, other potential races of things. Well, I, I was just thinking of, uh, I've been hearing just, like I said, maybe I'm just on a fairy kick. I'll just leave it out like that. But these, uh, that I've been hearing a lot of like these, uh, people talking the researchers about they're finding all these, you know, obviously there's just thousands and I'm, uh, I'm sure millions of miles of undiscovered, you know, cave dwellings underneath the earth and under all these things. But, um, the idea of like these small people, um, do you know anything? I'm sorry. The puck wedgie. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, would that be the same, uh, I guess, would we categorize it as the, like a Nephilim, uh, like <laughs> Very possible. still yeah. same thing, yeah, but that's, just, that's why, that's why there's all these different groups right. in the Levant when Joshua and Caleb go in the Zanzami, the Emims, you know, and in each one of these names, like Anakim means long necks, mm -hmm. you know, Horite, the Horites mean cave dwellers. I mean, you can go check all this stuff. Um, I think I think Zamzamin of the Emim is um, uh, terrible ones. Hmm. So all these different names, mm -hmm. you know, denote different genetic characteristics right. with these entities. And not all of them have to be giants. Right. And that's why we think little guys, the Anakin, because these were not giants down in Peru. Mm -hmm. They're not. They're, they're, they're relatively small. But I got to tell you, they must have looked really freaky. Yeah. I mean, and when, and when you go to the museum, uh, Huyoteo Museum in, in in Lima, when you go there, they've got these giants, you know, or they've got these elongated skulls with blue faces, and they look like white people with nice little normal eyes and little smile. I mean, it's, it's like so much in a DNA film. This is absolutely, absolute nonsense. It is. These mm -hmm. guys didn't look anything like this. And they, uh, because of the elongation of the neck, uh, they must have looked really freaky. And the large eyes, you know, who knows? Uh, who knows? I was just thinking of the alien from Alien with that uh, the yeah, xenomorph sort yeah. of. Yeah. Without the teeth. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, guys, I got to wrap it up. So let's oh, wrap perfect. it up, okay? Perfect. No problem. Well, L.A., why don't you um, share with us real quick where people can find you and um, and then give us the name of the book that's coming out in December or the and also the movie that the the, the your most recent movie. Yeah, the uh, the the entire film series uh, Amateur of Nephilim one through mm -hmm. five uh, are available right now on streaming.lamarzuli.net. 
streaming.lamarzuli.net. You can rent all five videos for them for 20 bucks. That's a great deal. Nice. We want people to get the information, but I want to stay on the trail. Number six is a pre-sale right now, DNA, the final results. You can only order that right now as a pre-sale. Normally, the hard DVD would be 20 bucks. We're selling it for 15 Go to lamarzuli.net, lamarzuli.net. You can do the pre-sale on that, say $5. And uh, once once we get the hard copies, we will put it on our use on our use uh, on our streaming channel, so people can watch that too. Um, look, this stuff is there's all sorts of books. I mean, this yeah. is the number 13 book that's coming out, yeah. and it's basically the second incursion uh, counter move, the second incursion, mm-hmm. how the fallen angels returned after the flood. Counter move, the second incursion, how the fallen angels returned after Excellent. the flood. We've got, we got Pastor Mondo Gonzalez, who does a wonderful overview. Uh, um, uh, uh, Mark Kahn wrote the forward, also his chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sandra Allison, who's, who's my editor, wrote a wonderful short chapter. So we've got some people, you know, that have, that have come in. That's why it's taken so long. A group of people that have come in on this book, realizing, and in fact, I had I had several people tell me um, that this is the most important book I've ever written. Hmm. I don't know. But that's what they're telling me. They would know. I just put my nose to the grindstone <laughs> and off. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. But uh, the DNA film will be out right after that. I am reworking our film on UFOs because of the, mm-hmm. the disclosure in their own words. I'm going to go in and do another completely different edit. That was my first standalone film. I've done nine films now. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, uh, I'm going to make this one a whole lot better. I can't <laughs> wait. Of course, we've got all new footage for another a UFO update. So I'll probably put the two together or release the second one, you know, hopefully in January. We'll see what happens. Right. Sweet. Wow. Well, we want to definitely have you come back when the book comes out. Okay. And uh, so you, you, those are your words. So I'm holding you to it. Love <laughs> <laughs> to come back. And Just work, work it through and she'll book me. And it'll be Absolutely. it'll be it'll be fun because uh, you also one of the things that we didn't talk about at all is that you have a great uh, take on current events and the politi- You have a, a commentary on the political uh, climate that we're dealing in, and it should be pretty crazy uh, mm-hmm. come December. Uh, hopefully not too crazy, but uh, I'd love to hear you take yeah, on some of that. Yeah, it'll be interesting too. to talk in a couple. I'll say one thing, man, you got to get out and vote. Oh, uh, yeah. The Democrats are saying saying that it's uh, the history. You know, the, the soul of a nation is at stake. Well, they're right about that. But if they get elected, they'll rip out the soul of a nation and urinate on it, oh, in yeah. my opinion. Wow. <laughs> Got to get out of Donald and, 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 and let, let's get the Republicans to take back the House so, you know, goofy Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. uh, won't be telling the rest of us to eat cake while she sits there in her little mansion. So it, a lot's at stake. The soul of a nation is at stake. Get out and vote for the Donald. And for crying out loud, pray. Yes. You know, if you don't, if you're going to church, go to your pastor and say, look, instead of having this 30 seconds of prayer that we have, why can't the front row turn to the second row, huddle up in the small groups, let's have 10 minutes, let's intercede, have the third row turn to the fourth row, let's mm-hmm. intercede for our nation, for our country, let's go up against the drug use, the the, uh, the abortion clinic in, in the town or the city where we mm-hmm. live, let's prepare, let's do something other than sit and do nothing for crying out loud. You know, you got all these people together on Sunday morning and we don't do anything. We sit around. Will the men please come forward and receive the morning offering while Sister Mary Elephant sings this beautiful song? (laughs) (laughs) 
Shoot me now, right? Shoot me now. Man. All right, guys. I got oh, we got company here. Yeah, right. thank you so much Stop again. Absolute pleasure. Love you, LA. Thank you. Love you guys too. Take care. Bye. <laughs> All right. Bye bye.